0: Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson.
1: Hi, welcome back. I'm Al Adamson. We're here with Tomás Chamarro Primusic, the head of talent analytics at Manpower. I am so excited that you're here. Tomás, if you would, please introduce yourself to our listeners. And if I mispronounced your name, or if I did not get your title spot on, please qualify what my introduction was.
0: Sure. Well, hi, Alan. thank you for having me. So the name was correct. So I'm Dr. Thomas chavar Chávar-Premusik. Title, almost there. <laughs> uh, so it is, it is tricky because it's very unique, like my name. I'm the Chief Talent Scientist at Mampar Group. And I'm also a professor of business psychology at Columbia University in New York and at UCL in London. And my background is basically in organizational psychology. So I started as a conventional assessment guy, looking at how assessment could be used to identify and predict potential. In the last five, 10 years, I kind of transitioned into the brave new world of AI and analytics. But the goal is still the same, is to look at the interface between science and technology to help organizations understand their potential, both external applicants or candidates and their internal employees or incumbents. So that's basically the world that I
1: inhabit so you' it sounds like you're just lying on the couch with your feet up, just relaxing most of the time now I, we have in full disclosure spoke before, and we got excited about the topics that you know, are of interest to to both of us, one of which was rooted in your recent book. Do you mind you know, sharing a little bit about that what I'll call an achievement and just you know what you're trying to do with that
0: yeah, I'd love to, and actually, I thought I might show a copy of things here. <laughs> casually lying on my bed. <laughs> yeah, how'd that happen? Like uh, 1980s or 90s product placement. Like, would <laughs> you like a cup of coffee? Yeah, sure. Here is my
1: Starbucks. Well uh, done. Well, mine's out of reach, uh, just for the record. So. Yeah. So the basic
0: idea of the book came from an article that I wrote for Harvard Business Review six years ago that tried to provide an alternative explanation for the unequal gender representation in leadership ranks. You know, the fact that basically, especially at senior levels anywhere in the world, except maybe Iceland, there are many more men than women in leadership roles. And, you know, at the time of my writing the original article, Sheryl Sandberg had just come up with her lean in argument that basically said, look, it's the result of women not being as driven, as ambitious or displaying their ambition and their drive and their confidence, maybe, as often or frequently as men do. And my view of the issue was, and still is, that actually that's missing the point. First of all, it's not okay to point the finger at women and blame them for these inequalities when you have things like the glass ceiling and the social injustices, and really, many times misconceptions about what it is to be a good leader or not, Mm -hmm. uh, right? So blaming them is not fixing the problem and may actually augment the problem because then women might end up being traumatized and think there's something wrong with them, that they can't emulate men and be good Mm -hmm. leaders. Secondly, it also creates the problem of not fixing the criteria and the methods that are in place for identifying leadership potential. If you look at the leadership baseline in any field, including the corporate world, most leaders don't perform very well. And I think the third and most important point, which gave birth to the title, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders?, is that actually we seem to be very seduced by the very qualities or attributes that make leaders ineffective. Mm -hmm. We gravitate towards leaders who are overconfident, abrasive, unaware of their limitations, unjustifiably pleased with themselves. And then surprise, surprise, when we reward these people and celebrate these traits, we end up with many male leaders who may be successful individually, but don't add much good or useful for their teams or or organizations. So basically, you know, I'm trying to call for a new framework and a new data-driven perspective on what leadership potential is. And the point that I make is that the best gender diversity intervention is to ignore gender and focus on leadership potential. Because if you only look for the qualities that make people better leaders, things like social skills, empathy, competence, you will not just end up with more women in leadership roles, but you will actually end up with slightly more women than men in leadership roles. So that's the book in a nutshell.
1: As you're speaking, I get very excited about not only, shall I say, correctness because that's getting a play a lot of play oh you know is you know, politically mm-hmm. correct but it's really true insofar as that it will benefit the individuals who are assuming those roles it'll set them up for success and organizations will benefit however, there is this significant, shall we say, knowing-doing gap. So what you're saying in the book and what you just said now makes total sense, yet the ability to apply it and apply it quickly has been a continuous struggle. Can you speak to that, and how do you see over the next year or two things shifting so these leadership models are modified, that the way we look at leaders and prospective leaders is, in fact, better?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the science practice gap exists in any discipline, but especially in HR and talent. Realistically, the safest bet is to predict that the system will autocorrect by having organizations who are more meritocratic and able or capable to appoint more talented leaders outperform their competitors. Mm -hmm. By the way, this will also happen with countries or between nations. You know, I come from Argentina, which is perpetually self-imploding or destroying. And, you know, what's the solution? Well, at some point, things will get so bad that outperformed by its neighbors or competitors, you hit rock bottom, and then maybe you start getting better. I mean, that's realistically the best thing. But we need to look for short-term solutions. And I think two or three things need to happen for that to be the case. First... HR leaders need to be able, need to have the maturity, humility and self-criticism to distrust their instincts and understand that it's no longer okay to play by ear and that they don't know talent when they see it and that they can't rely on interviews or informal short-term interactions to decide who gets the job and who doesn't. By the way, I think people analytics, even though it started as a concept and now it's becoming a real thing is putting pressure on HR professionals to be more evidence-based. They're not quite there yet, but at least a large number of people feel guilty today if they admit that they're playing it by ear. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's a good thing. Secondly, the elephant in the room, you know, organizations need to get better at measuring actual performance. If you don't have actual objective, reliable, robust measures of performance, you can't train AI algorithms to be more meritocratic or make workplaces more meritocratic. And the third one, I think, is we need to start being a little bit more astute with our influence and persuasion tactics, strategies. Sometimes to arrive to a rational place, you need to use emotion and you need to use buying and tactics of influence and persuasion, which is, a thing where today, people analytics as a field is lacking. You have people who are very geeky, data-driven, and scientific, but maybe they don't understand the business very well. And the solutions are going to come from there, from them, but they need to be savvy and have EQ and understand that it's about winning hearts and minds.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that is coming to mind for me as you're sharing this is that There's many thought leaders, academics over the years who have said the CEO, not only CHRO, but the CEO's ultimate responsibility is to consciously create a culture that can do the things the organization is set out to do, its it's mission. So, this has oftentimes been relegated to HR. HR has its own language. To your point, CHROs have been in that world for 20, 30 years many times. So, they're kind of rooted in legacy language, legacy mindset. So, my pointed question to you, it sounds like we have to innovate. If you're in a leadership role, whether it be operations chief executive or hr we have to think anew we have to unroot from again this legacy mindset that oftentimes has been suboptimal and even the technology vendors will come in want to perpetuate a process through a SaaS model that might not be appropriate there's obviously many vendors out there that have their survey instruments that have 10 20 plus years of, of validation yet that all anchors a bit into history as opposed to allow space to truly innovate in a new way. So can you speak to that a little bit? I completely agree.
0: And, you know, I'm often asked what makes a top CHRO or what are the definitive traits or competencies that make somebody a really good CHRO, which is a question I never liked very much. But Mm -hmm. if I'm being honest, the only systematic or consistent attribute is that, they have managed to get a direct line to the CEO or at least to the C-suite. And to some degree, they have the credibility to innovate because I think there is not so much difference in the knowledge or what should be done at the level of competent, and uh, sophisticated CHROs or talent management leads in big corporations. The main difference is how much buy-in do they have? And we're still today talking about, you know, HR having a seat at the table and not very funny jokes. Like if you're not on the table, you're on the menu and so (laughs) forth. There is some truth to that. And I think it's always easier top down. There won't be a grassroots movement here that makes Workplaces more evidence-based and more meritocratic, but there is also a fair amount of influence that HR professionals can exert going upwards. If they forget, if they go beyond what they know and understand how to influence their CEO or the C-suite, but it's about results, it's about business performance, and it's about making data relevant and translating information into valuable insights. And this, here I see big organizations having a people analytics function that is in essence more like an R&D function and the CHRO or the head of talent management being the link between that knowledge, that data, and business strategy. Mm-hmm. So it's changing the fundamental dynamics that we see within organizations. And I think, you know, HR professionals today need to understand the basics, the fundamentals of data, AI, and technology. If not, it's like 20 or 30 years ago for an HR professional not caring about the psychological or philosophical side of talent management saying, oh, I'm just a process person. I do comes and benefits, reward, right. laws, rules, and regulations. So in a way, now we're seeing the need for a much more all-rounded HR professional if we expect them to have some influence and drive change.
1: So I want to step back for a second and start tying things up a little bit so we can talk about AI and and those other things, because AI is rooted in data, is rooted in certain processes that generate this data and technologies, of course. And historically, if we're doing analytics, we've been customers of that data. Maybe we did a survey or, or what have you. But going back to your book, you have a very virtuous narrative. You talk about meritocracy a lot, you said it already embedded within that is an element of fairness that if I am contributing, whether I be man woman, any diversity group, you know then I want to be recognized, I want to be rewarded, I want to be elevated empowered all all, all those good things, given the knowing doing gap that we talked about, many organizations don't have a real meritocracy they don 't have to your point means in which to fairly ascertain whether or not their contribution is in excess of somebody else's aka performance mm-hmm. and so where i want to ask you these algorithms that we're using and there's a lot of you know noise about ai and there's some fear around oh it's just going to perpetuate what has happened historically mm-hmm. yet they can also you know be good so the point of question is is this something i'm passionate about and i try and open people's eyes is insofar as the quality of the data that we're using mm-hmm. oftentimes isn't very good. So if we're running AI on top of that, you know, that's not going to you know, produce the insights that are meaningful. So can you speak to the, the data that we're generating in the first place and the resulting algorithms that we in turn are going to make decisions on?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's uh, fair to say again, that we are, in the early stages of Mm -hmm. the field and that today the typical situation that big organizations find themselves in is they know they have to be data-driven. They know this thing called analytics and that there are advantages of being evidence-based. And I think they want to make places meritocratic and fair, but they don't know where to start. A lot of the data is based on human judgments, preferences, subjectivity. And so You know, the old saying in the social sciences is garbage in, garbage out, right? So you create the illusion of objectivity and evidence by translating meaningless facts into some outputs and then visualizing them nicely. So so I want to pick as an analogy of what could be done. Look at the world of professional sports and athletics, right? And so I'm going to talk about soccer, if I may, because as an (laughs) artist, I have played the sport that I... Shocking. uh, ...that I I, I kind of... uh, I'm familiar with but I know yeah. if you look at Moneyball or in America it's even more advanced right but let's let's look at soccer and what's remarkably different in the world of professional soccer and professional sports team sports and the average organization of civil jobs corporate jobs is just how efficient the talent market is in professional athletics right so if you look at the Premier League, which is the most competitive soccer market. First of all, much like in other soccer leagues, the statistics are extremely meaningful. You and I can look at two players that are outstanding, like Messi and Ronaldo, and you might tell me, no, Messi is greater, Ronaldo is greater. But it almost comes down to stylistic preferences. And there is absolutely no doubt that both of them are so much better than everyone else. Why is that the case? Because we know how many goals they score a season, how many assists, how their teams do when they play versus when they don't play, what impacts they have on others and all the awards they win, etc. So at the individual team and club level, you can evaluate very clearly the contribution and that happens for everyone. So it's not just that the top stars stand out. And so Deloitte a couple of years ago ran a simple study looking at the correlation between earnings or salaries for Premier League soccer players and their contribution to the teams in points. And the correlation is something like 0.9. So it's almost perfect, which of course is is depressing for most sports fans who go into every season thinking, okay, maybe we have a chance. But realistically, <laughs> we're talking about there are degrees of freedom, whether you can end up six or eight. but. You can't seriously expect to be first if, from an analytics perspective, your potential is 19. Of course, then every 100 years, somebody like Leicester wins the Premier League and we think, oh, you see, but that's one-in-a-lifetime kind of event, right? Right. So, we have to try to make workplaces as evidence-based as this. And the starting point is to try to quantify the contribution that each individual makes To their team unit and organization so that we move beyond the current scenario which is if you go into any company and you ask the average employee in this organization to the best and most useful people valuable people make it to the top they would laugh at you right so there's a big discrepancy or very small overlap between individual career success and actual performance. Mm -hmm. And this is the big opportunity for analytics and for data is to try to close this gap to make it, make the talent market more efficient. And, you know, we're at Mampar Group, we're trying to do this at the labor market level, right? How can we ensure that there isn't wasted talent out there, that you don't have individuals who could be very helpful in the economy, but they're being overlooked. And how can you also minimize the amount of false positives, people who are getting the jobs, but then they don't contribute or they contribute negative things. So I think it's a really, it's like the renaissance time or point in time for the talent age in that we can now be much more data-driven and predictive in our decisions.
1: I'm loving what you're saying. And especially the fact that There is so much room to innovate. I think there are those who have been around a while and say, well, that's just visualizing data that we've been generating for a long time and newer fancier tools, but that's not it at all. And there's a lot of innovation that is still going to, to take place. What I want to do is run a little bit with your soccer metaphor, because if you're in soccer, you have a handful of jobs, you know, a defender is not going to be scoring as many goals as a forward but they know their roles and the way that they're measured their performance their contribution is different. So if you're in a large enterprise of thousands of people, you have a lot of these different roles. So the way they're going to contribute is different. However, the behavioral attributes that they exhibit in terms of respect, empowerment, empathy might be very similar. It might be the pervasive way they do business, the the way their culture functions. So If that is, in fact, the case, and I sense you'll agree, what can organizations be doing now to effectively create those salient attributes, behavioral attributes, as well as appreciate the uniqueness in those particular jobs, particularly given the dynamic nature of jobs these days?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know... You're quite right. It might never get to the point of professional team sports, but uh, I think somebody said once that talking about science, that the point of science isn't to be right all the time or find the ultimate truth, but to find better ways of being wrong. And I think that this, this principle should apply to people analytics and talent management. It's like, okay, you know, often organizations, HR professionals, even CHROs, tell me, okay, I arrived here to a new job and asked them, what's your talent philosophy? And I said, well, there doesn't seem to be one. And actually, I spoke to our leaders and, you know, there's almost no point in structuring one. I said, well, that's a fundamental flaw in thinking because just because you don't formalize or make something explicit doesn't mean... That there aren't principles at at work. And actually, those principles will most likely be politics or nepotism if you don't make it clear. So I think organizations need to try, they need to sanitize or sterilize their performance management systems to be as clear as possible, outlining why some people are promoted, what gets somebody a bonus, what makes somebody a high potential. And be open to being challenged, but you have to make it so transparent. Some people are always going to be annoyed when they're not promoted because they'll feel that they're worth more than others do. But you have to try to create a sense of justice and fairness. And you're only going to do this by almost having soccer-like rules of the game. If I grab you by the shirt, it's a yellow card. If I use my hand, it's a red card. If I do this... So, you know, it's a lot of work and it's never going to be perfect, but it's the only way you can start not just being better with your prediction, but actually having a fair and ethical culture where people want to make an effort to perform because if they feel that it doesn't matter what they do or that the only way to get promoted is to suck up to their bosses and play the game, then suddenly you're going to be defunct.
1: Right. And so what I'm hearing is that we have to be conscious of the processes and the experiences that we're going to create, the the data that those processes and experience produce. Then we can think about AI and the layer on top. Many, however, are going to AI right out of the gate and they're using data that arguably is inappropriate that could perpetuate bias and, you know, sometimes be... Counterproductive. Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, that's a little bit like you know. I just remember the famous story. Uh, I suspect it is true of uh, in the nineties when Microsoft and Bill Gates were so big, people were buying floppy disks even though they didn't have a computer. <laughs> and so this is the same. I mean, if you're buying AI solutions or signing up for you know certain SaaS products, and you haven't even worked out what problem you're trying to solve, and how to translate your problem into a prediction problem and work out, you're not going to get very far. In fact, you're going to get further if you don't use AI at all and run simple correlations in an Excel spreadsheet, but have a good model, a good design, and a good structure, right? So, look, what I find really interesting and almost ironic is that Modern HR or HR as a discipline has its foundations 100 years ago, around 1917, 1918 or so, with the field of scientific management when Friedrich Taylor applied basic principles of psychology to making Henry Ford's factories more efficient and assembly lines, etc. So it's really interesting because for the first time, some leaders saw organizations as an experimental laboratory where you can apply or try to identify basic principles of human engineering. Then HR became very kind of bureaucratic, process-based, tactical. Then it became very philosophical and, you know, social psychology. But now we're back to the beginnings. We need to leverage all the phases that we have, and we need to be able to think like experimental psychologists and say, okay, what will happen if I try this in this unit? Or a, but it also, if you don't have data, you can't do AI and you can't be evidence-based. So it's about, as you suggested, getting the right type of data. And it's not about size. It's not about big data. It's about clean and predictive explanatory data. You know, yeah. it's mostly you need to do it in small doses and then you can scale. But if you're trying to do it all at once, you're not going to get very far.
1: Got it, and yeah, there's obviously different types of AI that can be applied, including you know natural language processing, and not to say that this AI related, but relationship analytics now. So there's a lot of different methods can shed insight into what's happening. Ultimately, that's going to touch on the ethics of our work. You know, what can be done versus what should be done. What are your perspectives and ideas on that? Yeah,
0: so you know, I think this is a really interesting area. There's definitely a difference today between what we could know about someone and what we should know. I think there are two basic perspectives on this. One is that regulations need to keep up and we're hitting at a moving target, and it's a blurry line of you know, novel behaviors that haven't been kind of scrutinized or regulated yet, and we need to wait. I'm more of the other perspective, which is that actually many of the fundamental laws and ethical guidelines that have been in place for decades are still safeguarding employees and organisations right so if you look at the field where ai and kind of big data has been applied the most which is profiling employees and assessing people the same principle applies principles apply which is do you have an informed customer have you requested their consent? Are they opting in? Do they perceive or are they getting a benefit out of it? And are you going to protect their data? And so that happened with traditional assessments and it's the case still today. So even if you go as far as to, you know, moving to an imaginary future where your Amazon history, your Spotify playlists, your Netflix movies, and all the things you do online could be scraped and translated into a potential indicator of your job fit or fit for a role, a job. It sounds like, you know, creepy and snoopish, but if you give consent and you own this data and you, you willingly share this data with recruiters and employers, there's nothing wrong with that. Even, i give you a more realistic case scenario. I think natural language processing is indeed one of the strongest signals that you can get. So the words we use, the frequency with which we use positive or negative words says something about our personality, our mood, say even our leadership potential. We've known that since the 60s or 70s, but now we can collect so much data to run it through natural language processing models. When I mentioned to people that the biggest and most informative and productive and predictive source of data that they are sitting on is email data and that algorithms could scrape people's emails data i think we each send something like 72 emails a day on average that's the average of course for managers is 300 400 and for some people it's maybe if they're top executives is 5 because for <laughs> them but if you translate this very consistent systematic and unique pattern of communications into competencies, bright side and dark side traits, you can not only get a good sense of what people are like, but you can democratize feedback as well and tell them what they're like so that they can know themselves better. So when I mention this to people, they're like, oh my God, this is so, you know, Big Brother-like and, you know, spooky and like unpleasant, but actually... They don't freak out that in some instances the real human bosses might be reading their emails and <laughs> You're <right>. You're <laughs> right. you know much worse. So the same if we tell people that you know algorithms that you run on social media can tell you if you're a good fit for a company or not, or if you should be a salesperson or a marketing person. They don't like it, but they're okay with recruiters putting their name on Google and looking at their Facebook profile and seeing whether they are, you know, maybe gay, straight, black, white, etc. So we have the ability to train AI and algorithms to be fair or ethical, of course, because AI doesn't have a personality. It doesn't have a self-esteem that it needs to maintain. (laughs) It it doesn't give a damn. Of course, if we program AI to replicate human judgment, it will for sure be sexist, racist, and prejudice. But unlike humans, AI is capable of ignoring and unlearning categories, whereas you and I no matter how much unconscious train, bias training we undergo, cannot suddenly forget that the person in front of us is Hispanic, female, attractive, unattractive. But whereas AI and analytics can ignore the irrelevant and pay attention to the relevance. So the potential here is huge to make things more ethical.
1: Yeah. And what I heard you say, too, is not only ethical from the individual perspective, and obviously, the organization would create trust if they communicate their ethical stances and adhere to them, but it would also create a value proposition for the individual, him or herself. It would create a level of self-awareness that, hey, gosh, I'm spending all this time. I might not be using language as intentionally as I can or should, and this would be the benefit for me as well as those that I'm serving.
0: sure. And, you know, so the feedback is valuable, but uh, of course the other thing that is valuable is like, I believe that most people want to be in jobs that are a good fit for them and where their natural interests, skills, abilities are best utilized. So we need to move beyond this idea that if the organization knows a lot about you, it's bad for you because they're, you know, going to behave like a fascist or Soviet, Soviet engine and kind of manipulate it. And also that... If you know too much about yourself, it's bad for the organization because you might know what else. So, you know, there is a win-win situation if we boost understanding, both understanding by others and self-understanding. And you can only do that with data.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so to this point, we've talked about data in HR being effectively maybe not an embassy, but certainly an adolescent. It has a lot of room to grow. If we're conscious about the technologies and processes that are capturing that data, we can then do analytics and put AI, be more efficient and effective, not only for the organization, but for team leaders and individuals themselves, ideally. Let's talk about, in our remaining time, is the impact of AI, globalization, automation on the workforce in general, because there's this fear that Okay, robots are going to take over. Automation is going to take over. It's obviously going to disrupt talent yeah. markets, both in terms of who we recruit, how we recruit, as well as internal development strategies. So, yeah, you know, what are your, your high-level thoughts on that? You know, very relevant topic here in 2019 and beyond.
0: Yeah, and so you know, we at Mampar Group have to deal with this issue on a daily basis because we're seeing clear disruption and automation of certain jobs and you know the displacement of human talent by machines computers robots so that which would be like ai with with the hardware as well right so not just pattern finding algorithms or machine learning algorithms which it, in essence, are just like a recipe, but actually machines doing people's jobs. And our position here is, I think, the mainstream position, if you look at what economists are saying and what has happened before, like with any technological revolution, what happens is that a proportion of jobs are automated and done by machines, but at the same time, that creates more jobs than The ones that are taken away, you know, so with every job that is taken away by a machine or a computer or a robot, there are maybe one and a half or two new jobs that are created. The issue is that the level of skills and expertise that is required to do these new jobs is A, different, and B, often higher and more complex, right? So so you can't just say, oh, well, you know, I don't know, a company like WhatsApp, can run on just, you know, 30 or 40 people and with minimal investment, but it creates so many verticals and it boosts advertising, whatever. Or think about call centers not being needed because you have chatbots, et cetera. But you have many people who need to program the chatbots. But the people who will work in the call centers are not suddenly going to become software developers and write chatbot code, right? right? So this is really why... Reskilling and upskilling is the critical issue, I think, in the labor market and in macroeconomics today. It's like, how can we ensure that the people who are most vulnerable to automation are going to be able to be retrained so that we don't become, as Noah Yuval Harari says, a group of useless, the useless class, right? He talks about in the future, if most jobs are gonna be done by machines and machines can train machines and run machines, we're gonna need guaranteed income or minimum income to uh, subsist without working. So to avoid that situation, which is unlikely, we need to ensure that we are ahead of the curve and we're training people to be useful, a useful resource to the economy. In Europe, governments take care of it and invest in it. In the US, it's not the government. It's also not companies so much, but it happens more at the level of uh, either industries or organizations that decide to do it. So just like in the 80s, jobs went offshore because they were cheaper than in India or China than here. Today, those very jobs are going to machines and they're being automated. So in a way, you're not seeing the immediate impact that it has here, but mm-hmm. it's going to come. And the fact that it always starts from the bottom and it creeps up, you know, even if you look at HR professionals, you start automating payroll and comp systems and, you know, the transactional part. But then you also, with AI, start to automate insights and strategy, etc. So. It's the most important, I think, the single most important issue in the realm of talent. And there's no simple solution, but, you know, leadership is needed to resolve it.
1: And leadership, in my view, if I can own this for a second, needs to be not only thinking about this differently, but needs to have the means and wherewithal, the willingness to make appropriate adjustments, because at least from my vantage point, I don't see leaders moving fast enough. They think, well, it's coming, it's coming and coming, but it's actually right here, right now. Would you echo that?
0: I echo that. And I think, you know, the, the fact that you are seeing the different Visions or strategies at play. If you compare different countries, right? So Europe is more socialist by American standards. So the government has a more proactive role and is more involved, trying to orchestrate this. You can go to actually pretty free market liberal economies like Singapore, and they're even more interventionist in their planning of what's going to be needed. In America, it's more or less a fair. But, you know, I think that's based on the assumption that we don't want to improve things for everyone, but we're okay with the cognitive elite and the most educated people doing really well and benefiting from technological advancements, even if lots of people have to suffer. So it's a choice that you make, right? And we're not here to judge what's right or what's wrong or what's right or what's left, but there are choices that are being made. And ultimately, I think that's the biggest philosophical conundrum which is that you could end up making the world of work more meritocratic and at the same time, inequality would rise. It wouldn't decrease, right? Mm -hmm. Today, most companies could effectively say, look, we're hiring the best candidate because on paper, on the interview, on the assessment, that person is the best. But if a person went to an Ivy League, and had a very expensive education and benefited from a great support network and they then marry somebody like them and have kids who have more resources meritocracy will increase inequality so yeah. it's very interesting and of course you know I'm not going to argue that organizations are in the business that corporations are in the business of trying to reduce inequality but you can also see what looks it has in politics in culture and a whole range of other social issues.
1: I love and respect your thinking. And uh, ultimately, in this country, the United States, it's left to the individual largely to identify the opportunities and find the educational and work experiences that are enable them to secure jobs. And oftentimes, they don't know, and they don't have the, the right resources at the right time and in their geography. So, yeah, we certainly have social challenges. And then it begs the question, what is the role of organizations, of corporations, and that is an ongoing discussion but uh, this discussion I believe would yes. certainly help them think this through and certainly your book and the thought leadership that you're bringing to the world is a huge asset to this narrative so thank you for joining me today oh, okay. this,
0: this is the time where I, w- I would say and that's why I'm running for president but
1: <laughs> I'm not eligible I would you, so, not yet uh, please don't vote for me yet. <laughs> <laughs> write you in <laughs> Well, uh, Tomas, uh, again, thank you for joining me today. Any closing comments and how can people get in touch with you and learn more about you and your work?
0: The easiest way is if they visit my website, which is Dr. Tomas with no H, so dot com. And most of the stuff that I've written that I do and my background can be found there. And then, yeah, if your readers are interested, why do so many incompetent men become leaders and how to fix it? I hope they
1: find it useful. Uh, not only useful, it's entertaining. It's a wonderful book. I, I was inspired, got a few chills as I read through it. And uh, you know, again, I think the world, frankly, needs to hear your your narrative and you know adopt many of the principles that you're advocating. So, yet again, thank you for joining me, and see you in a few short weeks at the yes. People on Lakes Future of Work Conference. Yeah, there in Philadelphia, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll get you over to Sydney next year as well. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Tomás, thank you so much. Super appreciate you. Thank you, Al.
0: Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the
1: Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.